Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, a double header with a difference. This week, we speak to representatives of one of Australia's two territories, the Australian Capital Territory. The ACT has internal self-government, but does not have the full legislative independence provided to the other Australian states, and is also different in that it carries out local government functions. For those listening in from overseas, the ACT contains the Australian capital city of Canberra and its surrounding townships, and it's home to, I don't know, roughly about half a million people. Like all leaders of Australia's states and territories, the ACT's Chief Minister, Andrew Barr, has been a member of the very effective National Cabinet. Now, the ACT is my home, and I love it, and I'm delighted to be joined by two of the ACT government's administrative leadership team who have played key roles in the Territory's government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Rebecca Cross was appointed as the ACT Coordinator General for the COVID-19 response, which is everything non-health related, from her position as Director General of the Community Services Directorate. Prior to working in the ACT government, Rebecca was a Deputy Secretary at the Federal Department of Human Services. She worked in the private sector as the Head of Government Policy and Regulatory Affairs at the insurance company Bupa and was previously Head of Domestic Policy at the Federal Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you, David. We're also joined by Katie Hare, who is the Director General of the ACT's Education Directorate. Katie was lucky enough to move to the ACT from Victoria just six short months ago. She was formerly Deputy Secretary at the Victorian Department of Education and Training, as well as the Department of Human Services. She has also held the position of Executive Director at the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet. And she was also a former board member at IPA Victoria. Katie, welcome to you. Thank you, David. So look, we like to start work with purpose by getting to know our guests a a little better. And Rebecca, I was doing a little bit of snooping on LinkedIn and noticed that you were fortunate enough to to do a job swap from the Australian Public Service into a a senior role in the private sector in a program that was organised by the Australian Public Service Commission and the Business Council of Australia. Um, what did you learn in your time in the private sector that has made you a better public servant? Um, thanks for the question, David. And I'll just start by saying I still feel incredibly privileged to have had the opportunity to do the two-year secondment. Yeah. Um, and I would highly recommend it to any other public servants if they get the opportunity. I think when you work in the private sector you get a completely different perspective of government, um, particularly when you're on the receiving end of government policy. Um, and, and you see what it's like for a business. And, and businesses are very different to, to government in many ways, um, although some of the core skills you take into the role are similar. Um, and I, I still think some of the key things which I saw at Bupa was um, just the intense focus on the customer, because if the customers aren't happy, the business doesn't survive. Um, I remember the British CEO talking about the need to transform our business and basically it was digitise or die. 
Um, it's not an option not to be going online because other companies are. Um, and so there's a really big focus on innovation um, and they use really good data and metrics to make decisions on how they change services, what they digitise. Um, and, and they also focus really strongly on attracting the right people to the company. So the focus on people um, and having people who are attracted to work at Bupa, who um, work really, really hard to deliver fantastic customer products, customer service, that's what makes them survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. So in the public service, that's all part of what we do but it doesn't have the same edge to it because if we don't digitise, the business won't disappear. Um, whereas in the private sector, it's just a different reality. Um, and I think understanding that, you can bring some of that knowledge back into the work you do in the public service um, and probably as well have a greater appreciation of how important it is to engage with business so you understand the impact of what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting that through these conversations in Work With Purpose, that link between the public service and business is a critically important one. But have you noticed a change in the ACT public service during the pandemic, that things are moving faster, decisions are being made faster? Because certainly at that federal level, things are are working a lot lot faster than they were in, in, in the past. And perhaps I suppose it's a result of the crisis, but do you think it's going to last? Um, look, ab absolutely things are moving a lot faster. And I think in the very early days when National Cabinet was meeting two, sometimes three times a week, the pace of change was um, very difficult to keep up with. And you would just get things set and then there'd be a new decision, um, new restrictions. And I think all levels of government um, experience that pace of change. It has, it has settled a little bit since then, um, but it's still incredibly fast. Um, and we do see here in the ACT, as we're starting to think about easing restrictions, for the business community, they really need to know what that means for them. Um, and they've got to make hard-edged decisions about, do I reopen? Because if we change the restrictions later and they have to close again, that's going to have a huge impact. They may not survive. So th the pace is huge, um, but the, the need to engage with business, the need to engage with the community, um, you know, that's, that's incredibly strong. And we've been doing some really interesting things in ACT government, which um, I might talk a little bit about yeah. um, later on. Excellent. Um, and Katie, uh, welcome to, to the program as well. You're a Victorian, um, a football team to get it out of the way early. Who's your team? Uh, well, I am one of those outlier Victorians. Who oh, you don't have a football I'm, team? I don't have a football team. I'm, I'm open. <laughs> you can suggest one to me, David. The Giants. Canberra's team. I'll go for them. <laughs> <laughs> is that even football? <laughs> it is. It is. The mighty Giants. They're Canberra's team in the, uh, in the AFL. But listen, um, you've come to Canberra from the Victorian public service. And, and I've got to say that I, I do have a lot of admiration for the Victorian uh, APS over the years. I've worked on a number of occasions with the Vic APS on bigger projects. And it, they do things well uh, in Victoria. And, and I noticed also snooping around on your LinkedIn that as part of your development, that um, as a member of the Victorian Public Service, it meant that you were able to study at the Harvard um, University Kennedy School of Government and you were also able to um, be involved with the Australian Institute of Company Directors through which you've graduated as well. And again, those experiences, how have they prepared you to be a better public servant? So starting with the working in the Victorian Public Service, I, I agree, David, it's a, it is a, like the ACT, it's a great public service. And probably the most significant experience I had while I was there for the 16 years I was there was working through the 
response to the Black Saturday bushfires. Yeah, right. And not dissimilar to what we're doing now, it created a kind of a sense of shared purpose, commitment and passion, which brought everybody together across a very, very large public service, you know, 10 times larger probably than the ACT. Mm. And... Um, like here now, we delivered some amazing things very, very quickly. Um, and that was in the face of a kind of almost unimaginable tragedy of 177 people losing their lives almost in the space of a day. So that was a, a very, very significant experience for me. Going to uh, the Kennedy School was remarkable. I hadn't um, quite experienced up close um, American exceptionalism until I was, I was there, and it was during the. Um, I was there in 2010 during the um, health debates um, under President Obama, and um, I was explaining to people how the Australian health system works and how marvelous that's been since the 1970s, and was uh, found it was really surprised at the responses of my fellow students who were so amazed that such a great idea was coming from a country other than their own and it made me really proud of all the terrific things that the Australian public service and Australian public policy has produced Mm. but it was also pretty interesting to um, discover that that um, wasn't widely understood elsewhere in the world. Yeah and that institute of company directors so again that what what was the motivation behind doing that course to to learn more was it Again, trying to understand business or governance or what was it? It was, it was understanding governance. It's a terrific course and um, I, certainly for public servants who are interested in questions of governance and understanding how our kind of public service governance fits within um, other, you know, other governance frameworks, it, it was incredibly illuminating. And I did, you do the course... I did the course with a range of people from across yeah. public sector and private sector. So you really got to compare notes about different types of decision making and, and even different drivers, as Rebecca said, the difference between a dollar bottom line versus the public good does make a difference to how decisions are made. And that was one of the interesting things that we explored in the, in the course. But yeah, it really changed the way I thought about things. Okay, great. Well, listen, we'll, we'll come to, to now the sort of substantive part of the conversation really is to, to get in and underneath and try to understand what's gone on here in Canberra because I, I would say actually through you to the ACT government on behalf of my family and certainly the workers here at Content Group, we've all felt sort of completely and totally reassured pretty much through the whole uh, pandemic Um but really, you know, as a local, I think, you know, the pandemic arrived after the, you know, the really um, devastating bushfire crisis that we had earlier in the year in our region. It was a major impact in the local community. And then probably less serious, but no less worrying for people was then the hailstorm damage that destroyed the private property of so many Canberrans, um, so many public servants. You know, that was a, a bad thing as, as well. So, Rebecca, to you, how ready um, was the ACT public service for this pandemic when it came? Um, So I think one of the most important things for us in the pandemic has been to work as one government um, and that's part of my role as the Coordinator General to make sure that we're all working together, we've got really good governance and decision making because the pandemic crosses so many parts of the community, the economy, that it's really important that we work as one government. Um, And we had been doing that during the bushfires as well and in fact that's the way we operate 
regularly. So I think the, the difference because the ACT public service is a little bit smaller mm. is we can connect up and we can work across directorates really effectively and, and that's one of the things I love about working in ACT government. Um, we really stepped that up for the bushfires and you would have seen Georgina Whelan, you know, yeah. absolutely outstanding. Yeah. But the work that was behind that and the whole of government effort and the whole of government communications, um, that stood us in really good stead for the pandemic because we've stepped those arrangements up again. Um, so when we're saying things, we're saying them with one voice. Um, when we're communi communicating with the public, we, we're actually, we have, a, we have a panel. I think we're the only jurisdiction in Australia that has a community panel that we've created at a whole of government level that we can tap into and say, you know, is the messaging getting through? How are people feeling? Um, what are people concerned about? Um, and the last time we did a survey, um, and I've got the figures here with me, we reached um, 1,200 people within 24 hours and a representative sample of Canberrans over the age of 16. And they could tell us that 91% of them agreed that they were being kept well informed. Um, they also told go. us 87% um, believe the ACT government is responding appropriately. They told us what they're most concerned about. So most of them are concerned about jobs and unemployment. That's 81%. The overall economic impact, 73%. The spread of infections, 70%. We, we can get that information within 24 hours and we can use that to make sure that we are giving the public the information that they need and that if there's things they're worried about, then we can have a think about how we respond to that. Um, and I, I do believe we're the only jurisdiction that can do that at a whole of government, whole of community level. Mm. Um, and it's, it's um, one of the things we found useful during the bushfires. Um, we're finding it useful again now. Mm. So, Katie, in your experience, obviously coming from Victoria, as you say, it's much larger. Um, but what has been your experience coming to the ACT and, and what are the those differences coming from a, a larger state um, public service to a, to a smaller, agile public service where you can get that sort of response that quickly? It is really remarkable, the, as Rebecca says, the connection between the different parts of the ACT government. It's, a, it's very real and it's, it's real time. And so during the bushfires, um, I had certain responsibilities, Rebecca had certain responsibilities. We would be on the phone to each other um, setting up the you know, the community respite centres, organising those things. There wasn't this sort of whole layers of bureaucracy and protocol. It was just simple decision-making and problem-solving um, that just cuts through a whole lot of um, time-wasting potentially. Yep. Um, I think one of the other things, so that's sort of at the whole of government level, there's also a really strong sense of immediacy and closeness to where our services are being delivered. And in my case, you know, the education through schools. We've got 88 schools here in the ACT and um, I can speak to a, you know, a representative group of principals. I can speak to about 25% of them on a phone hookup um, that I can organise in the space of about an hour and they will, because they feel that sense of closeness to us, they'll They'll make the time to yeah. hop on a video chat and give me their advice and tell me what's going on in their schools. It's so much closer than working in that much bigger system where organising a meeting of principals might take weeks. Yeah. Obviously, at a time like this, we don't have weeks. And so it's really crucial that, you have, that we're able to make the most of the scale to get in touch with people get things done yeah well, and it's interesting because it reflects i just as you say sitting there i'm thinking yeah this probably comes to part of the reassurance that you have as somebody who lives here 
because that immediacy does happen and that communication is there and it is very, very effective. But listen, you know, I'm also interested to know how you've joined up to the, the national cabinet effort because, as I said, with... Um, you know, the Chief Minister is on the National Cabinet, um, as other states and, and, um, and territory leaders are. So, Rebecca, so how have we joined up into that? You know, what, what has that looked like for, for a smaller um, agency like the ACT? Um, it's looked like an awful lot of meetings, to be completely <laughs> honest. Um, so we have, we have a pretty good... I mean, we have a regular process of meetings to make sure that the information's flowing and that people know what they need to know. Um, ahead of every national cabinet meeting, um, there's a pre-brief where all of the relevant people brief the chief minister. Um, after, so how many people would be involved? Uh, depending on the agenda, maybe 15 people briefing him. So there's the chief health officer, um, there's the cabinet people are there, the health minister... Um, and then depending on what else is on the agenda, all of the relevant there people are there to, to brief the Chief Minister. But then all of those representatives from the ACT are then sitting on all of the various national coordination National coordination mechanisms, yep. Um, then the Chief Minister and the Head of Service will go to National Cabinet. Um, all of the Directors General will get a debrief directly from the Head of Service after National Cabinet. Um, and then we have a Security and Emergency Management Committee of Cabinet meeting where they sort of go through, look at the decisions, get the proper governance around the decisions coming out of National Cabinet and that way all of the ministers are also completely up to date on what's happening. And that's a sort of regular routine that follows every... Um, or proceeds and follows every National Cabinet meeting. Um, we then, I follow that up, I meet as the Coordinator General with representatives of every directorate at the deputy level and make sure that the information's flowing down there. That's a bit more of a conversation where people can ask questions, talk about some of the connections, make sure the right people are connecting up. Um, and that's just built into everybody's diaries. Um, the Coordinator General's group meets daily, Directors General meet at least daily, um, and so it's a really quick information flow and it makes sure that we don't waste effort with people going off in the wrong direction or missing things. So how, how long are those meetings taking? Are they... Um, so the, most of the meetings with Directors General, it's a quick half an hour sort of catch up in the morning. Yep. Um, if there's nothing to discuss, it can be over in 15 minutes, but there's quite a lot to discuss at the moment. Uh, the pre-brief with the Chief Minister, again, it depends on the agenda, but, um, you know, half an hour to an hour... The cabinet meeting, national cabinet, goes for, I don't know, two hours, three hours, sometimes longer. Mm. Um, and then we have the half-hour debrief afterwards and the cabinet meeting can be one to two hours depending on the agenda. So it is it's sort of sizable chunks of time that we put into making sure everybody is up to date. Um, and it does mean that things go really smoothly because we've all got the information that we need and we're moving quickly mm. to, to follow up on what needs to be done. Excellent. Well, I'm sure one of the... Uh the topics, obviously, that has come up a lot, Katie, is in, in your world, education uh, at home, um, a huge change, uh, enormous stress for people. Can you explain how the ACT government has gone about its decision-making process? And obviously, inside of that then was the, uh, I suppose, the, the, the retooling of the education uh, directorate and the service to be able to deliver online education. It would seem to me to have been a fairly big task, pretty well executed pretty quickly, actually. 
You're right, David. And we were actually in a really good position to move to remote learning in the ACT because the ACT uh, was well ahead of many other jurisdictions in terms of its adoption of using digital technology for learning. And um, it was already part of the future of education strategy that the minister had put out a couple of years ago that um, ACT wanted to be at the forefront of how you use digital technology in the most effective way for education. And that went as far as um, meaning that we had kids, kids in secondary school all had laptops already, that they already knew how to use um, quite sophisticated um, technology and had a platform that the teachers were, had already been, had, had professional learning in how to use it in the second in the high schools and colleges we also in probably one of the great examples of you know that kind of quick innovative um, thinking were able to recycle the laptops from last year's senior students (laughs) who have now left school and we we had a few of these in the a few hundred of these in the storeroom to then provide those to the kids in primary schools. So we were able to distribute around 4,000 um, still really high-quality working Chromebooks for, that were used by the senior kids back to the primary kids so that they could commence, they could be ready for doing their online learning. We also got, and this is another example, like this took my breath away, I couldn't believe you could do this so quickly. Within a couple of days of the decision that we'd shift to online learning, we had five and a half thousand teachers. That's pretty much every single teacher, well, close to every single classroom teacher, um, doing online professional learning to improve their skills mm. so that they were re- they would be ready for supporting kids in the online environment. So we already had the technology, we already had the skills, but we also had this kind of agility to get people together. I I confess I was probably still reflecting a bit of my Victorian expectation that, oh, gee, that might, that'll take a couple of weeks to schedule. And my team said to me, no, we're st- this is on Monday. They said, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll, we'll have this done by the end of the week. You should come, just come and have a look at the come and have a look at this online learning. We had teams of teachers in classrooms all over the ACT, in, you know, online, all over the ACT, learning together about how to upskill themselves to be ready. It, it was extraordinary. But how hard is it to sort of pick up that skill? Because I know it's, it's a challenge for the parents at home. Um, I know for the kids. I know in my own um, circumstance, I'm pretty sure that my 14-year-old daughter hasn't quite got the, uh, the hang of it. Unless, of course, she's going to do a PhD in Home and Away. Um, but have, how have how, how can we get you know how, how is it? And, and sorry, I suppose it's more about the further impact. How, how do we now use these skills that have been acquired to sort of change the way that we educate kids? I think that's the really important point, David, because yeah. the you know the technology itself isn't the point. It's how it. I mean, it turned out to be crucial to us being able to continue to deliver education when face-to-face learning wasn't happening but actually the longer term advantage that we have by using 
digital technologies really smartly is that it gives us the chance to reach the kind of education nirvana where you have personalised learning. And so you have kids learning at their own pace, you have teachers able to um, use the digital technologies to do some of the you know, using the the technology to do some of the planning and providing the content and the information that they would have done in the classroom. And then they've they've already done that digitally. Then they can spend their time with your daughter or with Rebecca's daughter or mine, um, (laughs) honing right in on what their point of need is and helping them. And that's kind of, that's one of the holy grails of education. How do you get from this kind of whole classroom, everybody doing the same thing, to... um, kids learning at their own pace and where they need that extra help they get it where they need to be stretched they get it and that's because you the digital technology enables the teacher to use their time in a different way and that's one of the things we're hoping that we'll take back from this time into the next era of education but it's also interesting because we were involved in doing some work for the the education directorate around future planning around uh, new sites for schools into the future. And I wonder how much this has changed that sort of thinking of, well, actually, do we need as much buildings as we used, as we thought we were going to have now that we're going to perhaps have accelerated the way that we deliver education? I think we'll always need to have school buildings, David, to bring kids together for all some of the social and emotional reasons as well as the educational ones. But I do think they'll be designed differently mm. because as kids, as we grow in our ability to have really personalised, individualised learning, kids learn in different spaces and in different places. And um, that's what some of the, you know, the modern school design enables, you know, small group work, which is really crucial for kids to develop some of those skills that employers want, working together, problem solving. You've got to do that with other people. But you also need places or other spaces for kids to do their own individual work where they're going deep into something. So I I think school design is changing to Mm. reflect that world, but I think we'll always always have schools. Mm. Rebecca? Um, There's just a couple of things I'd mention as well and my previous directorate was the Community Services Directorate Mm. and um, a couple of other things that the Education Directorate did. We did keep um, a number of schools open and that meant that for vulnerable children who needed the face-to-face time that remained an option um, and they were sort of really carefully located so none of them were too far away from people. Um, And the other thing... And was the data good enough to know where those kids were and the support that they needed so you actually knew where the kids were? Yep, we knew, we we asked parents to register with us and we chose the sites based on the parents, what the parents told us and then we also looked at um, any of those students who might have needed some extra help, who might have had a, you know, a, uh, an issue with learning or disability or vulnerability, and we made sure that that help was going to be available for them. Sorry, with Rebecca, the no, no, I, I interrupted you. No, no, I think <laughs> and where Rebecca was going, with, with, we worked closely with community services. Sure. No, no, um, and I was also going to say um, there was also a rollout for the children who were working from home and who didn't have Wi-Fi access. Again, yep. the government stepped in and delivered... Um, dongles? To, yeah, to about 600 families who didn't have access oh, wow. to the internet. Yeah, so, so I mean, I think, again, from my old hat on, the focus on, you know, vulnerable people and making sure that people have access to the learning was really important in the model that we developed here in the ACT. Mm. Um, and that was really important because for some children, not having that face-to-face learning would have been a huge issue, and so we catered for that. 
Hmm. Now, the the statistics that you quoted earlier, I think the you know the main concern I think is this jobs security, employment, the economy. We're now moving into the next part of this crisis. Um, how are you as the government here um, and as leaders in this government starting to think about this next phase? So the next phase in terms of the economy, the next phase in terms of education and other things. In terms of the um, economy, we're taking a pretty similar approach to the national government and looking at which sectors of the ACT economy are most important. Um, in terms of the value they bring to the economy, the number of people they employ, um, looking at you know how they connect with each other. So if you've got um, no major events happening, that impacts on your hospitality, you know the hotel um, occupancies and so on. So we're doing a lot of work looking at which bits of the economy we need to open up. Again, what the sequencing is, what the interconnections are between those different sectors. Um, and a lot of work with the business community about how they can be COVID safe yep. as we do start easing restrictions. Um, I, I guess the other thing we're very focused on at the moment um, here in the ACT as well is just um, individuals also taking some responsibility. So there's when we're all out and about, we do still need to maintain 1.5 metres, um, good hand hygiene, good respiratory hygiene. So again, making sure that um, the best way we can support the Canberra community is to have these businesses reopen, have restrictions ease, but that will only happen if the people who are out and about are following those restrictions and, and behaving well. Um, and most people would have seen, you know, in a lot of the... Um, malls, retail areas, you know, we probably didn't have that quite right last weekend. So we're really working on how we work with business, with the community, so that we have a really safe environment as things open up. Um, we, you know, th there are some changes which are being announced in the short term. Most of them are small. It's going to be stage two and stage three where we really start to see um, a lot of businesses feeling that they can reopen with confidence. Mm. And, and as I said at the very beginning, the worst thing for business would be to reopen too early and then have to close again because they'll lose a lot of money and, and that will impact on their long-term viability. But in terms of the, the education thing's interesting, isn't it, around the social distancing? I was having a chat with a friend today who's a school teacher and I was saying, you know, how are you going to keep seven-year-olds apart? <laughs> you know, how, how, how do you get them to understand that maybe that's not a great idea to be sort of, you know, rolling around in the grass? Yeah, I think it's a really important point, David. The pandemic's not over and um, we're going to have to, uh, everybody's going to have to continue to modify their behaviour for the time being. Um, the partial good news is that the health advice is really clear that um, the virus doesn't transmit um, at a very high rate at all for ch between children. What we have to worry about in the ongoing operation of schools is the way the adults behave. And that's what we're putting a lot of effort into yeah. now. Um, we have to think about how staff rooms are set up, how lunch times are rostered. Uh, we also have to work with our parents because lots of parents, particularly of primary school children, like to come into the school but actually every additional adult in the school is adding to the risk and so there's quite a bit of behaviour change there that has to happen as well about the the drop-offs the pickups the the parents chatting at the gate that's kind of where some of our risks are now yeah and we need to work with our communities um, for them to understand how and why they need to change that behaviour as well as working with our staff because people love, you know, to chat and have, you know, yeah. have professional 
and other discussions at work, um, but we need to be reminding people that they need to keep each other safe. And so it's about the adults in the school. Mm. Um, the um, Fortunately, because I don't think you can um, physically distance seven-year-olds, as you said. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, listen, one of the features of, of, of this podcast is that we hear from the... Uh, the fantastic future leaders from IPA. And I do have a couple of questions here, but we might just take one today because uh, we're running a bit low on time. But it's from Amy Burgess from the Attorney General's Department. And uh, and she asks a, a similar question to one I did earlier, that we started the year with the bushfires and the dramatic hailstorm in Canberra and now COVID-19. Um, Amy wants to know, where do you see us in the next say, six months? How are we going to be going in six months' time? I'll start with you, Rebecca. Well, in part, that depends on um, how things go as we ease restrictions. Um, you know, I think everybody's made the case that as we ease restrictions, we will see more cases. Um, and if that happens, it's the way people behave that will determine whether that's a large outbreak um, or whether it's something which we can easily contain. Um, the good thing is if there are outbreaks, the health system here in the ACT is well and truly um, able to deal with them. A lot of planning has gone into that and we're really confident um, in the quality of the health system and the clinical services that we would pull together. Um, I'm an optimist, um, so I like to think that over the next six months we will see restrictions gradually eased, have a four-week period and then ease them further. Um, so that, you know, in six months' time, a lot of what we're doing um, will be reopening. Um, we won't be having large mass gatherings. Um, I'm quite glad I used to run the Multicultural Festival. I'm glad we got that um, very successfully um, up and running before COVID-19. But, you know, events like that won't happen. So no. there, there will be changes. But in six months' time, all going well, people sort of behaving um, with appropriate social distancing, um, not just here in New South Wales and other places, you know, I'd hope we'd see a bit more regional travel, um, land travel. Um, I'd hope we'd see a lot more businesses reopening, um, restaurants and cafes reopening. Um, you know, I think by stage three, which is the middle of the year, you're starting to look at numbers of, you know, maybe 50, you know, possibly even 100 in, in large places, as long as it's one person per four square metres, you know. So all of those things. So I think life will be, for, for most of us, we'll start to see some return to normality. But for vulnerable people, um, until we have yeah. the vaccine, you know, it's still going to be really, really hard. Um, for the people who got knocked around by the bushfires and now by... COVID-19, it's going to be really hard and, and we're looking at you know what um, mental health support people will need, um, how we connect people in the community up, how we look after vulnerable Canberrans. So that's a lot of the work that we're leading across government, thinking ahead 6-12 months and making sure that we're here to support the community as best we can and to support business. Um, and you know I would say that for business owners this has just been one of the most difficult years for many of them. Um, and so they're part of our community um, and we need to think of them as part of the community, not just as businesses. Hmm. And Katie, your, your sort of reflections on that and perhaps I suppose, you know, the, maybe the changing attitudes that perhaps the sort of education directorate can play a role, you know, this sense of being more thoughtful, being kinder, being aware of the groups that Rebecca just, just mentioned. I think that's part of what um, education's role is mm. to, to help young, young children and young people develop that sense of civic and social responsibility. Yeah, and, totally you know, right. you hear that from young people all the time. They, they have that. One of the things that we've been looking at is how do 
communities and how do education systems recover from events like this. And there is actually reason to be pretty optimistic. If you look at what happened after um, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, or if you look at the Christchurch earthquake, uh, where kids had um, a traumatic experience and they had interrupted time at school, those kids actually came back um, and their, their schools helped them come back, some of them stronger than before and probably with a depth of understanding that they might not have had. So that's what we'll be working towards. Mm. Um, school's not going to be exactly the same as it was before, but hopefully the children who attend our schools will have the opportunity to grow as humans as well as have that educational development as that the school provides. Great. Well, Katie, to you, and Rebecca, to you, thank you for your, for your service and thanks for coming in to... Uh, Studio 19 today to record our work with podcast uh, work with purpose podcast to you the audience thank you for tuning in uh, once again and for your ongoing support thanks also to our friends and colleagues at IPA ACT and the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support in putting the program together. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network and if you would like to check out the GovComs podcast, please type that name into your favourite podcast browser and I'm sure it will be surfaced for you. If you do happen to come across our social media promotion for the Work With Purpose program, please pass it along by sharing and if you are feeling particularly generous a rating or a review will help us to be discovered and yes it does matter so anyway thanks for your support we'll be back at the same time next week when we speak with the secretary of the department of defense greg moriarty and the chief of the australian defense force angus campbell but for the moment it's bye for now Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.